So before we begin our Torah study, let's let's pray. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshenu B'Mitzvotah V'Tivanu L'Asok B'Divrei Torah Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. One of the great callings that you have, that I have, that we have together is to serve God and to serve people. And it takes nothing less, if we understand the teachings of Yeshua, than love for God and love for people in order to be able to pull this off. And we're always tempted to, to do one or the other. You know, some are more inclined, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be nice to people. Another say, well, I'm going to love God, as if it's a matter of choice. Which one do you prefer? Do that one. And Yeshua teaches us that all of the Torah and the prophets hang on the two together. And by having this priority of loving God, we're enabled to love people, but the two go together and they should never be separated the love that we have for people is actually strengthened because we have experienced God's profound love for us. Because he loves us and he shows us that love, we can love other people. You can't pull love out of thin air. You experience love as someone in need, and then that love fills you up and it transforms you and it enables you to love others. John put it this way, because he loved us, we love one another. Without that love, we, we really could not be loving people. And, and you know, human beings are strange. We, we are so dependent. We're born dependent, and we end our lives dependent. And in the middle, we're always trying to get away from that, especially here in America. Everybody wants the power of independence, we want to be free to do whatever it is that we have a desire to do and, and a need and what we set out to do. And yet, the teachings of Yeshua are clear that we'll never really be independent. We'll never really be independent of God. We will always need Him. We'll never be independent of each other. We'll always need one another. And so, it's the case with love. We are enabled to love other people because we have received love. And in the same way, we're able to comfort other people because we've received comfort. Whatever difficulty you may be going through, I can tell you this. When you get to the end of that difficulty, you'll have something that you didn't have before. You will have a capacity for empathy. You'll have a capacity for compassion. You'll have a capacity to endure that you actually need not only for yourself, but in order to serve other people and to serve God effectively. The mercy and the love that's shown to you empowers you to show mercy and love to other people. Now, with, with those thoughts as background, I was reading on our Messianic Rabbis Forum how, how many people are processing the issues around what happened in Charlottesville and some of the greater issues that tear at the very fabric of our society. And many Messianic rabbis took note that our congregations are diverse. We're, we're made up of Jews and Gentiles. We're made up of young and old. We're, we're made up of people from 
different ethnic backgrounds, different countries, economic di differences, educational differences. And in that diversity, we can actually be useful to God. And we can be useful to our country because we can be instruments of reconciliation and healing. And the question is, why? Why? Because our whole country actually is diverse, but our whole country is having difficulty embracing reconciliation with one another and healing. So why can we? And, and I think one rabbi put it really clearly. He said, because... We have experienced persecution. We have experienced oppression. We've experienced bigotry. You see, the things that you've suffered will either give you redemptive power to be useful for God and other people, or they'll just break you. And I can tell you this, if they don't break you, it's because you came to God with those difficulties, and he did something to fix you. He did something to strengthen you. He taught you something you could not have figured out, or even if you did figure out, you couldn't have implemented in your life. And you have a personal testimony. You have experience of knowing this, that God rescued you, not only from your troubles, but he used you and continues to use you to help other people in the times of their trouble. So I know as a young Jew growing up in the Shenandoah Valley and the Blue Ridge Valley in Roanoke, Virginia, I experienced anti-Semitism regularly. It was part of our everyday life. And I've been thinking about my father and, and other Jewish leaders and other community leaders who, who had meetings together to figure out during the times when I was growing up, what will, they, what will the community response be when the Ku Klux Klan comes to town and wants to have a march? And what will the response be when neo-Nazis come? And there were moments when community leaders such as my father decided that, that they needed to stand up and, and rally together people of goodwill and, and people of diversity to stand against prejudice and discrimination, and they did that. But you know what was hardest for me as a, as a young person was understanding those moments when they decided that the people who were gathering were too few in number and what they wanted more than anything was publicity. And they would, the, the leaders in the community would decide, we're going to ignore them today and not speak up and not fight against them. And I remember just trying to make sense out of that with my dad. And, and he would say things like this, even though what they do is hateful, they have the right to free speech. And we're not trying to take that away. But we want to change the community for good. But what they really want, I remember my dad saying this, what they really want, son, is they want publicity. They want to spread their hatred. And we're not going to give them the publicity this time. And there were moments when even the newspapers and the TV stations decided they're not going to cover some of that stuff. And it frustrated the haters. It frustrated the KKK and it frustrated the neo-Nazis because they didn't get publicity. But there were other times when the, the publicity was not about their hateful message, it was about the community standing up against it. 
But we don't live in such times as that. That was decades ago. We're living in different times now. And the, the times are very complicated. I read this week a letter from the president of the Reform Synagogue in Charlottesville, Virginia. Alan Zimmerman is his name. And he, he wrote a letter that, that he shared publicly about the experience last Saturday as they were preparing for the, for the neo-Nazi marches and so forth. And I, I want to read some excerpts. And interestingly enough, you know what the name of the synagogue is? Beth Israel. It's a Reformed synagogue, not Messianic synagogue. But he wrote a letter, and he started by saying how grateful they were for the support and prayers that, uh, that they were receiving, and that their thoughts and prayers were with the families of Heather Heyer and the two Virginia State police officers, H.J. Uh, Cullen and Bert Bates, who lost their lives on Saturday and with the many people injured in the attack who are still recovering. And then, let me read some excerpts. He said, last Saturday morning, I stood outside our synagogue with the armed security guard we hired after the police department refused to provide us with an officer during morning services. Even the police department's limited promise of an observer near our building was not kept. And note, we did not ask for protection of our property, only our people as they worshipped. Forty congregants were inside, and here's what I witnessed, Alan Zimmerman wrote. For half an hour, three men dressed in fatigues and armed with semi-automatic rifles stood across the street from the temple. Had they tried to enter, he said, I don't know what I could have done to stop them, but I couldn't take my eyes off them either. Maybe the presence of our armed guard deterred them. Perhaps their presence was just a coincidence, and I'm paranoid, I don't know. Several times, parades of Nazis passed our building, shouting, there's the synagogue, followed by chants of Sig Heil, another anti-Semitic language. Some carried flags with swastikas and other Nazi symbols. When services ended, my heart broke as I advised congregants that it would be safer to leave the temple through the back entrance rather than through the front and to please go out in groups. And then he says, this is 2017 in the United States of America. Later that day, I arrived on the scene shortly after the car plowed into peaceful protesters. It was a horrific and bloody scene. Soon we learned that Nazi websites had posted a call to burn our synagogue in Charlottesville. I said... Okay, when I'm saying I, I'm reading his words. It's not my personal experience. I sat with one of our rabbis and wondered whether we should go back to the temple to protect the building. What could I do if I were there? Fortunately, it was just Nazi talk, but we had already deemed such an attack within the realm of possibilities, taking the precautionary step of removing our Torahs, including a Holocaust scroll, from the premises. Again, this is in America in 2017. Local police faced an unprecedented problem that day, but make no mistake, Jews are a specific target of these groups. And despite nods of understanding from officials about our concerns, and despite the fact that the mayor of Charlottesville himself is Jewish, we were left to our own devices. 
The fact that a calamity did not befall the Jewish community of Charlottesville on Saturday was not thanks to our politicians, our police, or even our own efforts, but to the grace of God. And yet in the midst of all that, other moments stand out for me as well. John Aguilar, a 30-year Navy veteran, took it upon himself to stand watch over the synagogue through services Friday evening and Saturday along with our armed guard. He just felt he should. A frail elderly woman approached me Saturday morning as I stood on the steps in front of our sanctuary crying. She told me that while she was a Roman Catholic, she wanted to stay and watch over the synagogue with us. At one point she asked, why do they hate you? I had no answer to the question we've been asking ourselves for thousands of years. At least a dozen complete strangers stopped by as we stood in front of the synagogue Saturday to ask if we wanted them to stand with us. We will get back to normal. We have two B'nai Mitzvah coming up, and soon Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur will be open upon us too. But for most people, before the week is out, Saturday's events will degenerate into the all-too-familiar bickering that's part of the larger ongoing political narrative. Those are some of his important words in reflection. So Jews gathered in a synagogue like this. People gathered together. Gentiles who wanted to stand with the Jews in Charlottesville last week felt the threat of the Nazis felt the threat of those who not only wanted to protest something, but they wanted to intimidate and strike fear. They came with weapons armed and as an act of intimidation. They rallied together and declared that the synagogue should be burned. And you can imagine what that produces in people. So it can produce fear, right? But... Fear can turn into something else. Fear can turn into compassion because when you know that God is looking out for you and that as we know, God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and love and a sound mind, we need to learn how to take the things that that are meant for harm towards us and turn them into courage, not just for ourselves, but for other people, to stand up for other people, to speak clearly on behalf of other people, and not to be thinking about how we're going to look good out of this or how we are going to um, benefit from it. In this week's Torah portion, we read in Deuteronomy 14, verse 2, You're a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the nations on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. But we have to understand what that chosenness is for. It's not for privilege, it's for responsibility. It's for service, not for something else. And Peter put it this way, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, to proclaim the virtues of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the call of the Jewish people, and thus the call of everyone who joins themselves with the Jewish people, 
is to proclaim, not only in word, but in deed, to, to declare and to embody the virtues of God. And to know that he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we're called to be a royal priesthood. This is very important. The, the function of a priest is something we have to understand. The priest helps guilty people get restored to God. If people were sinless, we wouldn't need any priesthood. The reason there was a priesthood for Israel is because all have sinned and gone astray. Even the high priest was guilty of sin and needed sacrifice and needed atonement. And so when you think of the Jewish people, I want you to think of this. That if, if in fact, through Messiah, we're called to be a royal priesthood, we're called to be a royal priesthood to a broken world that's acting ever more broken day by day and showing its brokenness. We're called to an assignment to serve the nations of the world. And how do we do this? We tell them of God's goodness. We tell them of his virtues and we help them be reconciled to God. And so we help people get into a right relationship with God and then with one another. But sometimes people don't like to do the hard work of being a priest and we'd rather take another assignment. And I want to remind you of how the disciples of Yeshua faced this situation and didn't do so good. One of the most... (laughs) Because we learned from their example... Now, one of the things I like the most about Yeshua's teaching is that he brings clarity to controversy. And in the middle of a controversy, sometimes he'll focus on details everyone else is ignoring, and he'll ignore details everyone else is focusing on. And a great example was the the story about the ongoing argument among his disciples about prestige, power, and greatness. And if you read the Gospels, you'll see this problem surfaces again and again. It's not just a one-time occurrence. It's not, it, even though in, uh, in Luke, I think, there's an example of this argument happening during the Last Supper Passover meal. <laughs> and this is the last chance to be with Yeshua before he's arrested, you know, and treated like a criminal. And they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest. But if you read Luke, you read Mark and Matthew, you'll see it wasn't just a Passover. It was at many, I was going to say all the time. I can't say it was all the time. But it was an ongoing problem. And I, I like Matthew's account because he, he writes about the ongoing disputes, but he focuses on one situation where one of the Jewish mothers got involved. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Yeshua with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. And you know the rest of the disciples are saying, you know, this is not fair. You can't pull the Jewish mother guilt thing. You can't use her appeal for this. You know, this is cheating. And Yeshua says, what do you want? And she said, grant that one of my boys here can sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. And Yeshua says, 
you have no idea what you're asking for. And he says to them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And they said, of course we can. And Yeshua said, right. You will in fact drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my father. That's not the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story. Verse 24, when the other 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And I thought about that. I thought, you know, they're indignant because the two brothers are saying, we will be the greatest. And the other 10 are saying, not you, us. So verse 25, Yeshua calls them together. And any parent who's ever had bickering children knows that, you know, you want to talk sense into them, you want to get their hearts right, you want to give them, like, a good explanation, you want to sort out things and see, like, well, who, who really started this and who's guilty and so forth. Yeshua doesn't go in any of those directions. He calls them together and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials dominate and try to subordinate the people. Not so with you. Now he says not so with you at the very moment when it is so with them. What they want is to have more power, more prestige, a greater position. They're arguing over who will be, who is the greatest. That's the real argument. And any parent who has you know, more than one child. You know, you probably experienced this where they're jockeying for position and thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to. But Yeshua says, you're not to be like them. You're not to be this way. He doesn't say, you sons of Zebedee, you know, you're so smug and arrogant or whatever. He doesn't say, you other guys, you're better. He says, none of you is to fall for this temptation. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become the servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your servant, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Yeshua is speaking something very difficult for those disciples to grasp. And I think during that time when they were together with him, they didn't grasp it. It was only later when they saw that his service, Yeshua's service, involved laying down his life for them. That they maybe have thought they were serving him and that they were getting, you know, close to the one in power and they would have prominence in the future. But now they understood after he was arrested and after he was crucified, after he was buried, they understood something that he'd been serving them all along and that they hadn't been serving one another. Yeshua knows they needed an attitude adjustment. And the fact is, it's not just them, it's all of us. We all need that attitude adjustment because people everywhere have difficulty having the heart of a servant toward other people. 
We want to be chosen, but we want to be chosen for prominence. We want to be chosen for power. We want to be chosen for privilege. And yet, the word of the Lord through Moses, the word of the Lord through Yeshua, the word of the Lord through Peter is we're chosen to serve. We're called to serve, and we're called to serve people who are already guilty. So some of them will be our enemies and some will be our friends. Some will hate us and some will like us. But we're called to serve. It's challenging. Our nation will never learn this enough if we who consider ourselves part of God's household don't learn it better. And I know this just by looking at some of the writings of American presidents in times past. George Washington wrote uh, to the Jewish people in Rhode Island and commended them and told them that they don't have to settle for tolerance in America. They should expect goodwill from their fellow citizens. That was remarkable. And, and it continues to touch Jewish hearts to this day. Abraham Lincoln, in his second inaugural address, called America to turn from the very things that had divided us and to become people of goodwill towards one another. And to, and to bring healing to our broken land. And he viewed the Civil War as God's judgment on the nation for the many sins that we had tolerated through slavery and, and so forth. And when I say so forth, I mean the things relating to slavery. There's a time when we have to reckon and get things settled, and we have to do our best to, to get things healed. We have to become agents of healing and, and not of something else. Now, you can't go into any synagogue in America today and find someone who's going to be spending Shabbat defending the right of Nazis you know, to, to gather and protest. I mean, it is America, and we have constitutional rights. So, but that's not what rabbis are going to be talking about this weekend, I can tell you that. We're, we're going to be talking about is what do we do in light of this broken, brokenness in our country that continues to persevere? And how will we ourselves learn to be useful to God and to our nation to seek the good of our, our country? What can we do? And, and one rabbi, Eric Carlson, pointed out a relatively obscure text from 2 Samuel that I found so useful. And it's in 2 Samuel chapter 21. You can turn there. Just two verses that are so profound. There was this period in ancient Israel's history when King David was ruling, but there was an extended famine, and the famine had gone for three years. And King David thought the famine was not just a natural disaster. It wasn't just a, a, a weather-related issue. 
but he thought there was some spiritual issue that needed to be faced. And so he prayed and he sought the Lord for an answer. And the answer he got in 2 Samuel chapter 21 was precise. It was this. Israel had killed Gibeonites unjustly and was guilty. And this is why the famine was on the country. These are the two verses that I want to read from that story. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. And so the king called the Gibeonites, and he spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel in Judah. And so this passage is a humbling passage for the Jewish people who had suffered so much by the slavery they had experienced, by the mistreatment they had experienced. But there were times when the Lord said to Israel, Do nothing against this people. I've assigned them this territory. And if you even drink water, you have to pay for it. But here was an example of the guilt of the nation that was needing to be reconciled. And you can read about what David did. His first step was to call the Gibeonite leaders together and to say, We've sinned against you. This is what we did. And now we need to fix it. And when I think about our country, I think our country still has a lot of sin to repent of. A lot of sin. And not just the stuff that is recently risen, but long term, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be fixed. And you might not know what it is if you're not on the brunt, if you don't experience the brunt of it. The reason I read to you about what it was like for the people in Charlottesville at that synagogue is I wanted you to feel what that's like, to hear that story. Because maybe you didn't know it. Maybe you weren't aware of it. Maybe you weren't even thinking in this direction. Maybe you're watching the news about politicians and you think, oh, this is all political. It's not all political. There's spiritual stuff going on. Now here's the promise. It's from the Haftorah this this week. Isaiah 54, verse 13 and 14. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great will be the peace of your children. In righteousness you will be established. You will be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. It goes on to say that if people assemble against you and they gather to do you harm, it's not from the Lord, and he will stand up for us. And then it says, no weapon formed against you will prosper. 
And every tongue that rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Not from ourselves, but from him. Well, I don't know who you're going to be in contact with this weekend and in the days ahead, but most likely you'll be in contact with people who have opinions about political things and don't even know that there are other issues going on. It's not just about politicians. And if you want to be an instrument of, of healing, let that empathy stir up in you. Let that comfort stir up in you. Let that love stir up in you that you've already received in times past so that you can share it with other people in times of need. It's, it's my hope that you will do this and then you will be able to fulfill what Yeshua said, love one another as I've loved you. By this, all will know that you're my disciples. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your righteousness and we thank you for your continuing mercy to us, a nation, and to your children who call upon your name. You continue to show Mercy to us far beyond anything we could expect or deserve. And we humble ourselves before you and ask for more mercy. But we do not want to hoard mercy for ourselves. We want to freely share it with others. And so as you bring to us those who are downtrodden and those in need, those who are oppressed and those who are broken, those who are suffering, use us, Lord, to bring mercy and love and news of your faithfulness that we could proclaim the virtues of our God and fulfill that priestly mission in Yeshua's name. Amen. We're going to close with Aaron's blessing. Would you please rise? And if you're standing by yourself, if you don't mind just shuffling over a little bit. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha. Ye'er Adonai panavelecha v'yichunecha. Yisa Adonai panavelecha v'yasemlecha shalom. The Lord bless you and the Lord keep watch over you and the Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you and the Lord be gracious to you and the Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace in the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Amen. Shabbat shalom.